0: Hi, my name is Sarah, and I've been attending Gateway for about nine months now, when my dad accepted the position as a worship director. I now serve in the worship ministry through uh, tech and on the cameras, and I'm also an edge leader on Wednesdays. Our passage today comes from Revelation 19, verses 1 to 7. The twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne, saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Thank you. Good morning you have your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and grab that and find Revelation chapter 17. While you're doing that, let me say hello and welcome to those of you who are joining us online, especially uh, Houston CRC, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We just want to welcome you. We love you. We're glad you're joining with us today. This is uh, a a very fascinating subject that we're going to be looking at this morning. We are taking three more weeks to march through the book of Revelation, and after that, Easter. Easter is within a month, can you believe it? And we are looking forward to that as well. But I really do want you to have your Bible in front of you, so you can be tracking with me, because if you did your homework and you read Revelation 17, 18, and 19, you know what we're about to step into. You already know the things that uh, we are about to read and the subject matter that we are going to cover. It's explicit, it might make us feel rather uncomfortable from time to time, and yet here's what I want you to know on the front end. I want you to know that everything we're reading today isn't new. In fact, it's already been covered, like we have reviewed many, many times in the first 65 books Of the Bible. So what John is doing here is he is recombing old truths in new and fresh ways in help in helping to activate, to rightly activate our emotions, and for us to understand more fully what God is doing in the unseen realm. That's his objective. That's his goal. So let me set the stage. Last week we looked at the vision of the Seven bowls of God's wrath. And we discovered there that this is actually good news for the Christian because the bowls of God's wrath are not poured out on you they are poured out on his son. So this isn't a message of hell, fire, and brimstone. It is a message of Good Friday leading into Easter Sunday that God is victorious, that he has paid the way for all of our sins. We have been wiped clean through the blood of the lamb. It is good news for the Christian. And so that's what we saw, this last vision that is tied to the unpacking of the opening of the seven seals on the scroll. And you might recall all the way back in Revelation chapter 5, we read this. John, he says, I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So after nine weeks, and now into our 10th week, we finally see fully unpacked the plain main thing of this book. And what is that? Here's the review. Fear not, dear Christian. Victory is won. Victory is One. And so from this point on, John is going to unpack three key themes that we've all seen already. We've already reviewed these things, we've already heard them, we already know them, and yet he wants us at this point in time to now make a choice. So if you've been waiting for the application portion of this book, if you've been kind of asking that question, what's my part to play in all of this? If you've been wanting to enter into everything that this book is talking about, this is the opportunity. Today is the day that you get to enter in and to make a choice. So here's the plain main thing of what we're looking at. Today. It shouldn't be a surprise to you. We've heard it before. But regarding you and the Great War, you are either following the way of the Lamb or the way of the Dragon. That's not new, right? We've heard it before. But it finds its crescendo moment today. The opportunity for you today to make a choice. And that's why I titled this message, A Tale of Two Cities. We are going to see a juxtaposition this morning of the city of the dragon versus the city of the slain lamb. We're going to see the city of the kingdom of humanity that is bent toward the destruction and the rejection of God and his people, or the city of God himself. Or the more graphic image that we are going to see this morning is the tale of the two women. The tale of the prostitute and the tale of the virgin bride. Both of them being pitted against each other for us to see more fully what God is calling us to enter into. So that's what we're looking at. So, this, in this vision, an angel shows John an absolutely stunning, scantily clad, beautifully intoxicating woman and she is dressed like a queen. And if you look at your Bibles, you will see that she is drunk with the blood of the martyrs and of the innocent. And look, the dragon is back. The dragon! We read about the dragon in Revelation chapter 13, in which we saw Satan and his minions were thrown down to the earth, no longer having any power. God is victorious. But then when he came to the earth, he solicits the help of two beasts, The first beast being the Leviathan, what does he want to do? He wants to capture the loyalties of men and women and to divert them away from the worship of God, the throne room of God, and then we see the behemoth, and what does he want you to do? He wants Christians to make a compromise agreement in the culture and to worship anything else other than God. And so they're all working together in order to activate your soul away from the throne of God and toward the worship of self or anything else. And so here together, they want to burden upon you the mark of the beast. And what is that? What's the mark of the beast? Well, we've learned that already too. It's your disobedience to this book. It's any time you've determined that, that you're smarter than this book, that you treat it like good advice rather than God's authority over your life. And so why this reference of the forehead and the hand? Well, that's in reference to the Shema, Deuteronomy chapter 6. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. These commandments I give you today are to be on your hearts, Impress them to your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your forehead. So there it is. The forehead represents your faith, your ideology, your worldview, your theological understanding of who God is. And your hand represents faithful living obedience to the word of God. And Gateway, that's why I'm telling you that we need to be a place that embodies its doctrine. We're going to embody our doctrine. We're going to not only know what it says, but we're going to live it out in obedience to God through the help of the Holy Spirit. And so here's the woman she's riding on a dragon, and John is drawing together everything we've been learning for the last 10 weeks in a final showdown for your soul. For your soul. So if you have your Bible, Revelation 17, verse 5, it says this, the name is written on her, this is the prostitute, the name is written on her forehead, there it is again, was a mystery. And now she's going to be given three titles. Babylon the Great, the Mother of Prostitutes, and of the Abominations of the Earth. So here's the first question we have to ask. Why why the image of a prostitute? Think about this. I know you don't want to, but we've got to think about this for a second. Why the image of a prostitute? We see here that she is lewd, but we can't take our eyes off of her. We know that it's wrong, and yet we still see that our hearts are drawn toward her. She represents everything that the dragon and the two beasts have been selling us throughout the course of this entire book trying to divert our attention away from the throne room of God and toward anything else. She's trying to seduce us. And why the name Babylon? What what is all that about? Well, we know the answer to that as well. We learned it already. We know that Babylon is code for Rome, Every single time we see the word Babylon in the, in the book of Revelation, we just know it's code for Rome. The reason why John had to do this is because he's on a deserted island in Patmos. He's in like a, a maximum security prison with a view. That's where he's at. And so everything that he tries to write down, it has to go through the security team to the ward the other side. So he's writing about prostitutes and dragons and blood. And they're looking at this like, this guy's a lunatic. He's a crazy man. But every time he references Rome, he codifies it. But because first century Christians know their Old Testament, they know exactly what he's talking about. They know that this is a reference to Rome. So look at Revelation 17, verse 9. This is probably the best instance of this. It says this, in reference to the seven heads, this calls for a mind with wisdom. He's already alerting them. Be wise in what you're about to read. The seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. So we know that Rome is situated geographically around you guessed it seven hills seven mountains see this picture that we just put up here we see that there are seven mountains within Rome and so instantly when they see this reference they know once again that he is talking about Rome they even have a festival every single year called the uh, the Septimontium or the festival of the seven mountains but but here's what we have to see this morning It's not just Rome. Rome is just the practical outpouring of this in the first century. But really what it's talking about is any human city, any human country, or any heart for that matter that exalts themselves rather than exalting the king of kings and the lord of lords. Any country, any city, any human heart that is more focused on the exaltation of self over and against the throne room of God. You got your own little mini throne that's all set up toward and against the throne of God. And anytime we do that, we are bringing our allegiance toward the throne room of the dragon, the kingdom of the dragon. Now look at this from chapter 17, verses 1 and 2. One of the seven angels who had the seven bulls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits by many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. So we see here that the kings of the earth are seduced by the prostitute who represents the city of man, the city of humanity that is hell-bent toward rebellion against God, rejecting God. Why? We have to ask ourselves that question. Why? Well, because there's an opulence there. There's, There's a beauty there. There's fulfillment there. There's security there. There's sexual fulfillment there. And they want a peace. They want some of this. Like even today in the 21st century in which we have a lot of different amenities regardless of our wealth, most of us have Netflix. Most of us have heating systems and air conditioning and things of that nature. But we just cannot understand The the gravitational pull that people had toward Rome, the roads of Rome, the peace of Rome, the sexual fulfillment of Rome, the essence of Rome. Everyone wanted to be in Rome. They said, that's the good life. That's where we need to be. I want a piece of it. I want to live in this place. But as we watch the story unfold, here's what we have to see. It becomes abundantly clear that John is not talking about just people who live in the kingdom of the world over and against the city of the lamb the throne room of god he's talking to christians he's talking to the church he's saying warning you need to be alert to this because it is very easy for you to get seduced by this as well And that's exactly where Christians are in the first century. We've talked about this perhaps five, six, seven weeks ago when we were preparing for this series. We we had to understand just how tempting it was for first century Christians to have their cake and eat it too. To feel the allure of Rome. To want to enjoy the luxury and the wealth and the fulfillment and the peace and the security that Rome brings. And so that's why we can never grow tired of hearing me say, put your binoculars away. There's enough here for you and for me that we need to work through to understand more fully the temptation that Satan wants to lay upon our lives. He's saying, be careful. The woman is seductive and she's out to suck you in. So that's the the essence of the imagery. That is the emotional response that God wants you to have when you read these three chapters. In fact, I find it somewhat humorous what happens in Revelation 17, verse 6. Look at the latter half of verse 6. It says this. This is John talking. He says, When I saw her, I was greatly... What's the word? Help me out astonished. Greatly astonished. Now, I don't like poo-pooing words that are in scripture, but I think this is the weakest word that they could use, because this is the Greek word thealmazo. It only shows up one other time throughout the entire New Testament, and it's in the, uh, the book of Jude, in which he is talking about Christians who don't behave like Christians. He's talking about Christians who don't embody their doctrine. And so here's what he says about them they follow their own evil desires, they boast about themselves, and they flatter. That's the word, Thaalmazo. They flatter others. Another word you could use, they seduce others. So this word that we see here, it means to be flattered by or to fawn over or to be lured in by or to be seduced by. (laughs) Like we got to remember, this is John, the apostle John, author of scripture. And so here comes an angel and he says, I'm going to reveal to you the great prostitute and the evil work that she does. He goes, all right. And he looks at her and I think maybe the better translation for us today would be, Dang. <laughs> and then the angel goes, What are you doing? Take your eyes off of her. Like what? Like, come on, divert your eyes, look away. But that's that's kind of the, the emotional response that we gotta see out of this. So here's what we gotta know. If John can be seduced, so can you. So can you, and so can I. And so we're trying to see here. The main point, he is warning the church, she's a seductress, and she's better at it than you think, and she's better at it than you give her credit for, and it's the reason why many of us are sucked into this. Many of us are struggling with the very issues that are identified in these three Chapters because we're not given credit where credit is due. This is a word of warning to the church and it's a word of warning for us. The beautiful prostitute, she's riding on the back of the beast and she is saying, This way to life, this way to fulfillment, this way to satisfaction, I will give you what you need. Are you tired? Are you lonely? Do you have longings? Get over here. I'll give you what you need. I'll give you what you want. Don't follow Jesus. Jesus, is just like. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. I won't say those things to you. I'll give you the desires of your heart. I will give you what you want, when you want it, with whom you want it, wherever you want it. I'll give that to you. Put your trust in me. Worship me. Follow me. I will fulfill the longings of your life. This is the game that she plays. She's after your soul. She's trying to draw you in, to seduce you, to suck you in, Gateway. That's the game. That's what she's trying to do. So... For, for the sake of, maybe there's a guest here this morning and you're contemplating whether or not you believe Jesus is real. You've walked in this morning and we're talking about prostitutes and dragons and you're like, what, are these peop- what do these people believe? Just so you know, we don't believe there's an actual prostitute or an actual dragon. These are images, references, to help us understand more rightly what is happening in the unseen realm. But at exactly the same time, here's the point that I would make to you it's actually worse. It's even worse than the imagery that we see here. Eugene Peterson, he he puts it this way. He says, the great whore is one of these large, simple caricatures. It's It's an image that can bring to never again to be forgotten awareness the powerfully seductive presence of those who would obstruct or subvert our worship of the slain and risen lamb. That's what Satan and his minions are trying to do. To subvert worship, or for us to forget about worship, and to worship ourselves, or any other created thing. He just wants your eyes off the throne room of God, whatever else it is. He doesn't want your eyes here. He wants your eyes over there. So this is the tale of the two cities and this is the reason why I've been trying to convince you that you're not neutral. You're either following the way of the lamb or the way of the dragon. And I think there's plenty of Christians who have convinced themselves they can walk on the tightrope and say, I can have my cake and eat it too. I can enjoy the luxuries of Rome and of Babylon or whatever else that is in our 21st century context and I can give God a nod over the weekend. And this book is telling you you can't do that. There's two kingdoms and you live in one of them. And I put it this way in your Nochi, the tale of the two cities, the, the city of the dragon, the great prostitute, they represent humanity's rebellion against God. God says, go north, and they start going south. And the city of the lamb, or the essence of the virgin bride, is represented by sacrificed and faithful living and obedience toward God. These are two different kingdoms with two different ideologies, two different locations of our heart. We can't live in both. I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it. He says this, the first is a place of indulgent and lustful getting. But the second, the city of God, is marked by sacrificial and faithful giving. Now let me ask you, of the two, which one draws the hearts of people? Which one is easier to get sucked into? The one where you are seeking to have a long obedience in the same direction, constantly denying yourself, taking up your cross daily, and following Jesus? Or the life of, you can have what you want, when you want it, with whom you want it, anywhere and anytime. Which one do you think we're naturally going to fall into? And so, of course, this is very, very difficult for us today. And actually, I think think it's harder still, because one of the elements of the Christian life that I think is incredibly difficult is the fact that oftentimes we have to wait, and we don't know how long we must wait. Let me give you an example of this. A few years ago, Julie and I watched a show called The Selection. Have any of you seen that show before? It is fascinating. I think it's on the the History Network. And it's where uh, a bunch of random civilians go through special ops and Green Beret training. Intense physical torture in pushing their bodies to the limit, their minds to the limit, the, the psychological warfare that they have to walk through. So there's waterboarding, there's holding arms, while the, the ocean just continues to smash against them for hours until they give up or they have hypothermia. But on one final day, the one that really stood out to me that I thought was just, it, it should have been easy from the comfort of my couch was when they were told to put on a 65-pound pack and to just start walking in the wilderness. But here was the one note. They weren't told when it would end. They didn't know when it would end. They just said, start walking. And the interesting thing was... That was something that they had to do every morning. They had to walk or to run or to march 10 miles with their pack out in the wilderness. So this is something that they're used to, but they knew that it was 10 miles. They saw the ending in sight. They knew when the torture would end. And yet in this particular story, when they're heading out, many of them just started dropping like flies because they couldn't deal with the psychological trauma of not knowing when the pain would end. And so only two people survived that test out of everyone who started. And so I'm once again reminded of these first century Christians who are living in Rome. Where if you are a Christian, then you are ostracized from the community, You are not included in the local economy, or in politics, or in influence, or in culture. You are beaten, you are persecuted, and many times you are put to death on account of your belief. But here's the thing. Here's what the Leviathan and the behemoth keep telling them. If you just accept that Caesar is Lord the same way that Jesus is Lord, then you can have your cake and eat it too. It could all be over. It'll be fine. You can worship the dragon and you can worship the lamb. You can have both at exactly the same time. Your kids won't be harmed. You can go back to work. No more persecution, more money in your wallet, more influence. All these things could be yours if you just yield to Caesar. So we got to know deep in our bones just how difficult this message is. And meanwhile, the great prostitute is telling them, it can all be over in an instant. Just worship me. And I think we struggle with the same things today. I think we struggle with the same issues. It might look different, and yet today as Christians, we are dealing with exactly the same questions, the same lure, the same draw of wanting to have your cake and eat it too wanting to fully embrace the culture, to fully live into the ideology and values of what our culture represents, and to have Jesus on the side, because then I'll be accepted. It won't impact my business. It won't impact my relationships. It'll all be okay. This is the warning of Revelation 17, 18, and 19. Peterson puts it this way. Whore worship brings us great gain. We get what we want when we want it. But bride worship is an offering we give of ourselves and, like I noted already, we don't know how long we will wait for fulfillment. That's the hard part, I think. And so once again, God is warning us, watch out. She'll seduce you. And from here, the angel shows John what she really is. And once again, if if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, he is going to expose the game for what it is so that you can defend yourself against the schemes of the evil one. And this is the part that I'm excited about. You can counterpunch the enemy in his face. We can make some noise, Gateway with respect to what Satan and his minions are trying to do in our community and in our culture, when we understand the game, we can actively join together with God in the work that he is doing in our world right now. But we have to understand the game for what it is. And to see that everything that this prostitute offers is nothing but an illusion It promises ease and comfort and sexual satisfaction, but in reality, she can't offer any of those things. So let me identify three things that are really important, exposing the game for what it is. Here's the first one. Uh, With respect to the great prostitute and the dragon, they can only distort what God has made good. That's all they can do. They can only distort what God has made good. The only thing that she can do is try to twist and distort all of the things that God has made. Now now here's something really interesting to think about. God made our bodies. God made sex. God made laughter. God made relationships. God made food. God made all the necessary ingredients and materials for a good glass of wine and some bourbon. God made the fact that riding on a roller coaster at really fast speeds is something to get excited about. God made all of those things, and yet the only thing the evil one can do is to distort them for our own selfish gain. Because the purpose of everything that God has made is for those things to be a gateway for us to understand more fully who God is and to worship him. So every time we spend time with our friends and we enjoy good food, every time we go on a roller coaster, every time we hang out with our friends, every time we go to work, it should draw our affection toward Jesus. But if the objects are the ends upon themselves, then they will always leave us wanting because they can't satisfy your soul. They can't. And so this is the only thing that the prostitute can do is to distort what God has made good. And so here's what happens next. Revelation 17, verse 16. It says this. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. What? Like I I, I thought they were on the same team. Isn't the prostitute riding the dragon? You know, aren't they like taking over the world together? Why is the dragon consuming, destroying, eating the flesh of the prostitute? What's going on? Here's the point. Because number one is true, Because they can only distort what God has made good. Number two, she can't deliver on her promises. And so she will always consume herself. That's the end result of this. Here's what we need to understand. Our enemy is really, really good at what he does. He is really good at making promises that he can't deliver on. And my hunch is the enemy has never kind of audibly communicated to you his objectives and his goals as if to say, hey, here's what I want to do. I want to destroy your marriage. I want you to become addicted to your work. I want you to become addicted to drugs or to alcohol or to your influence or to being well-liked by others or anything else that's going to divert your attention away from God? And really what I want to do is I want to leave you dry and bitter and angry and isolated and lonely and afraid. That's my game. All right, so I just want to lay that before you. That's what I want to do. You in? You in? You in? Of course not. We're going to look at it like, what a terrible deal. And yet, how many of us wind up there? He's good at what he does. Again, it starts off, it's always a bait and switch. It's always, come here, I'll take care of you. It's okay, I'll give you what you want, I'll give you what you need, put your trust in me. And when he can't deliver on himself, he'll just consume himself and start over. And he'll make the same promise to you a second time, and a third time, and a fourth time, and a fifth time, continuing to make the same promises. And we keep buying what he's selling. Over and over again, we keep buying the same stuff that they're selling. She's insatiable. She's hollow, but she's so beautiful. And man, I want that. I want what she's offering. So maybe if she can just like give those comforts to me, those things that are so satisfying to me, then maybe everything will be okay. But it's not, and it will leave you dry once again. And then we get to Revelation 18, verses 2 and 3. It says this with a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. Again, a reference to Rome. Who's thinking Rome is about to fall? No one. And yet, Rome did. Rome did. Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. She becomes the dwelling place for demons. (laughs) Like, on the same day, we talk about prostitution. We're going to talk about demon possession. What a great morning, but we're going to go into it. What's the plain main thing here? Like, we we don't really have space in our brains to talk about demon oppression or being demonized. What we would rather do is have one of two ideas about Satan and his minions. Either a big, funny, red guy with a pitchfork, or someone who doesn't exist, isn't that isn't that true? Aren't these the two leading ideologies of how we view the evil one in our day? And yet here's what I want to propose to you. I put it this way in your note sheet. They, this is what they want. They want to stay invisible in your brain. They want to stay invisible in your brain. One of my favorite singers growing up was Keith Green and, and he had a song, They Just Don't Believe in Me Anymore, in reference to Satan. I, I used to have to sneak around, but now they just open their doors. What an incredible concept that I think is plaguing us, even as Christians in the West. We think demon oppression, demon possession, that's just something that happens over there, not here. But, but here's the thing. Anytime he lures us into treating The word of God as good advice, as opposed to the ultimate authority of our lives, we have been demonized. Not demon possessed, right? Foaming at the mouth, convulsing, all the things you might think about. You've been demonized, you have bought into the way of the dragon. That's what they're trying to communicate to you, and they want to stay invisible in your brain. Of course they don't want people foaming at the mouth, falling down all over the place, because then you might become alert to the things that are happening in the unseen realm. So what they would much rather have for you is for you to act like he just doesn't exist. And then he can go after your marriage, he can go after your kids, he can go after the affections of your heart and you're not giving him any of the credit of what he is due. So why spend so much time looking at this? Why is this so important? Why expose the game? Well, I put it this way in your note sheet, so that we don't have to discover it on our own and learn the hard way. Jesus is trying to show you where all of this ends. The book of Revelation is trying to save your life So Jesus, he's begging you, he's ushering you, inviting you to step out from under all of this. And I hope you know by now, you don't just drift toward godliness, right? With respect to these two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the dragon, we have to see that the river current goes downstream. Otherwise, you need to swim against the current, With respect to these two kingdoms, the escalator is going down. The natural inclination of our hearts is to go down. We have to run counter to it. So if you're still questioning this morning, which of the two kingdoms am I living in, you have to ask yourself one question. You have to see whether or not you are actively, willfully pursuing the kingdom of God. If not, you're drifting. You're drifting. Plain and simple. I think of Heidelberg Catechism question and answer number two. It says, with reference to the Shema, by the way, Deuteronomy 6, can you live up to the law perfectly? The answer, no. Why? Because I have a natural tendency to hate God and my neighbor. That is your heart. That's my heart. In everything that we do, we have a natural inclination to run in the opposite direction and to fulfill our own longings and desires of our heart. That's what this is trying to communicate to us. And so here's where it goes next. Looking down at uh, verses 9 through 16, I'm not going to read them, but you just got to see, all the great kings of the earth begin to mourn when the great prostitute becomes to be destroyed. And at first glance, you think they're mourning for her, but really, they're mourning for themselves. Why? We see the captain of the ship, the merchant, he begins to mourn. Why? Because he, can't, he can no longer port in Babylon and enjoy the amenities of Rome. The kings begin to mourn. Why? Because it started to affect their pocketbooks. The merchants begin to mourn. Why? Because it has harmed their pocketbooks and the things that they're trying to do in that space. And so they're not mourning for Babylon. They're not mourning for Rome. They're mourning for themselves. And anyone, any person who is living in this world, that's the end result. Even if the prostitute dies like a phoenix, she's just going to rise again in another way, in another shape, another form. And we're going to start worshiping that. Just doubling down on something different that leads to the same place. But ultimately, it leads to this. Revelation 18, verses 4 and 5. It says this. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered their crimes. This is the calling for us to be kingdom-minded people. And so the question is, how do we do that? I want to really quickly share with you the three ways that we as Christians can be kingdom-minded people. The first one is this. City of the Lamb people, kingdom-minded people, are to be people marked by peace, rejecting the warring of Babylon. We are to be people with a heart that understands that despite what we might see all around us, that Jesus is on his throne, that he's sovereign over all things. That victory is won. That he is in control. And so that's why I just wanna lay down before you, Gateway, that even if the earth is shaking under our feet, it shouldn't disturb us, it shouldn't concern us, it shouldn't overwhelm us, because we know how the story ends. It will rightly activate us to meet needs, It will compel us to enter into that space so that others might see the light of Jesus. But it won't fill us with angst. It won't fill us with worry because we know how the story ends. We will be people marked by peace. And if we live this way, the whole world will notice. They'll begin to say things like, you know what? It's almost as if they know something I don't know. It's almost as if they know something. What do they know? (laughs) Why are they people of such incredible peace? Gateway, we've been built for this. Because we know how the story ends. The second thing that we will be is people of radical giving, rejecting the consumption and the consumerism of Babylon. We will be people marked by radical generosity. Babylon is insatiable, always wanting more money, always wanting more sex, always wanting more fulfillment, always wanting more security. And the more they accumulate, the more anxious they become. Because it can't fulfill the longings of their heart. And so we run counter to that current. And one of the ways that we do that is by displaying radical generosity and hospitality to those who don't yet know Jesus. And they go, my goodness. And once again think to themselves, there's something that they know that I don't know. And then the third and final is that we are to be people of worship, inspiring hospitality, toward the people currently living in Babylon. We don't have time to read all of this today, but I do want you to know that all of chapter 19, each of these four hallelujahs, are exactly tied to the last five chapters of Psalm uh, 146 to 150. Each of them hearkening us back to a heart of worship, something that we learned last week. That even as it looks like the world may be going to hell in a handbasket, the people of God begin to sing a hymn. Why would they do that? Why would they sing a hymn while the world is on fire? What would inspire them to do that? Because they know how the story ends. And so with respect to people who might not yet know the name of Jesus Christ, might not know who he is, we are always invited to enter into that space and to share the good news. God is calling you to two things this morning. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, number one, to turn away from the prostitute, to turn away from the dragon, and to turn back toward the throne room of God. But number two, at exactly the same time, as your eyes Gaze out at the throne room of God, that you would be motivated to share the joy that you have with those who do not yet know it, that you would set a table before your enemies, that you would bring out the best bourbon, you would bring out the best steak, all the fixins, you would look at them and you'd say, Tell me your story. What are the desires of your heart? What did you long for when you were a little kid? What do you want now? Hear their story. Love them. Let them see the joy that you have. I've shared with you already, Easter is right around the corner. I'm going to give a very simple message of the resurrection of Jesus. And I just want to challenge you, to inspire you, to encourage you. Invite a friend. Invite a neighbor who's far from God. This is the joy of our lives. They need to hear it too. So I'm going to lead you in a prayer and I'm going to give you some time to pray about these things. And I'll just open some space for you to get right with God and to talk about him with these two. So with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, let let me pray for you. Lord, I have some repenting to do this morning. I repent of the ways I have not walked in peace. I repent of the ways that I have often warred just like the city of Babylon. Maybe not with a call to arms, but through my own words, through my actions, through social media, through propaganda. Oh Lord, I have not walked in peace. Lord, I have not been generous. I have been selfish. I have been a consumer. And I repent of the ways that I have been that. Cast a vision of the throne room for me that I might see it more fully today. And Lord, I have not been hospitable to the Lord those who do not yet know Jesus. I am so sorry, Lord. I ask that you would give me the conviction of my heart to share the good news with those who do not yet know it. That they would see you for who you are. The King of kings. The Lord of lords. The one who came from heaven to earth to save us. Lord, I realize that I have raged against people made in your image rather than recognizing that the true enemy is Satan and his minions. I have embraced hating my human enemies, but now I see that the only enemy that I have is Satan. Lord, forgive me. By the power of your Holy Spirit, do a good work in me. Do a good work in us that you might use us in this time and in this place and that we might see with our own eyes the great work that you will do in our time. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.